You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, we're in Mark 8, so if you want to go ahead and turn there, have your Bible open, that would be a help and would really serve you this morning. So let me start with the story that I heard here recently. Um, A pastor uh, tell this story about a good friend of his. So he had a good friend who uh, was in law school, and he was at the end of the law school little thing here. So he had one semester left, and in that last semester, he only had one class left. So he is on the downhill slot, you know, side of this thing. And you know, he was doing really well in law school. He's at the top of his class. He'd even written some articles in his university's little uh, journal for, for law. So, I mean, this guy was like, he was there. He was sharp. He was on it. Last class, last semester, and he had saved like the easiest class he could possibly save for that last one, over the last semester. And so uh, he starts the class this last semester. He, he starts, you know, shows up the first day and realizes, man, this is nothing but like first-year law students. This is going to be a joke of a class. And so he never shows up. I mean, he just shows up to take like the midterm, um, you know, aces that. And now we are all the way to the end of the semester, like the last thing to finish law school. And he's, he walks into the classroom like the third time of the year for his final exam. And he walks in just in time to hear the professor say, um, the test is going to be open book. The test is going to be three questions. And you've got exactly three hours to finish this test. So, so you take your blue book and, and you write the, the, the three answers, you know, the, the answers to the three questions. And you need to be back here with your blue book in hand within three hours. And if you show up in three hours and one minute from now, you will fail this class. There are no exceptions to this rule. If you show up in three hours and one second, you will fail this class. It is three hours or less, period. No exceptions. So, so he, along with all the other students, take, you know, he took his blue book. And uh, rather than doing it inside the class, he decided to go outside. And uh, he, within an hour, he just smoked all three of the questions. He just nailed them, killed them all. And rather than just taking his blue book right on back in, he decided to take a nap. Now, I don't know what he's thinking either. I have no idea. So he decides to take a nap, and lo and behold, he wakes up, and the, the class started, or the test started at 12 o'clock, and he looks at his watch, and his clock says 3.05. And he does what all of us would do, right? He takes his blue book, and he runs as fast as he can to the class. And, and he gets there about the time that the professor is gathering all the blue books up, and, uh, and you know, kind of getting them in his bag and, and getting ready to go. And he walks down and looks at the professor and says, hey, prof, and this, this was a great class. I mean, this, you nailed it this semester. You, you did an awesome, appreciate you, love you, here's my test. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll see you. And, and the professor looks back and says, I, I'm sorry, sir, but there are no exceptions to this rule. You have failed this class. And in a stroke of brilliance, this guy looks back at that professor and says, Professor, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And the professor looks at him and says, no, I, I have no idea who you are. And he, he looks back again at this professor and says, professor, you take a good look at this face. Do you know who I am? And the professor says, no, I've, I've got no idea who you are. And the third time, this guy looks back at this professor and says, 
Professor, do you know, you take a good look at this face. Every little crack and crevice of this, you look at this face. Do you know who I am? And the professor's kind of getting a little bit agitated, a little bit scared at this point, all of those sort of things. And he looks back and says, I've already told you like twice, I don't know who you are. And if you keep yelling, I'm going to call security. And in that moment, this guy takes all the blue books out of his hand inserts his own blue book in there, throws them all up in the air, and runs out of the class. (laughs) Gets an A on the test, finishes at the top of his class. That's brilliant, isn't it? Who thinks of that in that moment? Now, I think that is an appropriate lead-in to Mark chapter 8, Because here is really what the first eight chapters of Mark are about. If you want to boil down the first eight chapters of Mark, it is Jesus in the first eight chapters looking at you and me. And he's asking this question. Do you know who I am? Can can you see in the first eight chapters who it is that I am? Can, Can you see that? This is what the first eight chapters of Mark are all about. This is why in chapter two, Jesus heals the paralytic. And rather than just saying, okay, your, your legs are going to work, get, so stand up and walk. Rather than saying that, he looks at this paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Do you remember how the religious leaders respond to Jesus in that moment? Why is he talking like that? Only God can say that. And Jesus, I think in response, silently would say, that's the point. I'm trying to get you to see who I am. Do you remember in, in um, Mark uh, chapter 4? The disciples are in the boat and they literally feel like they are about to die in this storm. So they, what do they do? They wake Jesus up. He stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And do you remember what happens at the end of, of Mark chapter 4? The, the disciples look at Jesus and say, Who in the world is this that can make the wind and the waves calm? Who can do that? This is the question of the first eight chapters of Mark. Who is this man? Let's just like cut right to the core this morning. I can't, here's the truth for all of us in the room. There is no more important question you will ever answer in your life than that. See, you're going to answer literally thousands and thousands and thousands of questions in your life. But there, are, there is no question that you will ever answer in your life of the thousands and thousands of questions that, that more is riding on than this question. There's no more important question. Heaven and hell hinge on this question. You living under the eternal condemnation of God or commendation of God hinge on how you answer this question. Who is Jesus? That This man born to a Galilean peasant it lived in relative obscurity who, who now, like our whole time system is based on his life and death, who is arguably the most important and most influential person that has ever lived. Who is that man? That is the most important question that you will ever answer. And here is the great news about where we are in Mark chapter 8. It's this climatic point in the first eight chapters. Well, listen to this. For the first time in the history of humanity, somebody is going to be asked that question and they are going to answer it correctly and clearly. For the first time in the existence of humanity, in Mark chapter 8, that That question is going to be answered correctly. So that's the question we're dealing with. Who is this man, Jesus? So follow along. We're going to start in verse 27. Who is this man? Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, I just want to point out, and this is a little bit of a side note here, but, but this phrase that he went on with his disciples. You know, Jesus is doing a lot in the three-year ministry that he has. He's doing a lot in word and deed. He is preaching, he is healing, he is casting out demons, he is confronting the religious leaders. Eventually, he is on his way to a cross. He is doing a lot in his three-year ministry. But I just want you to see that he is doing all of those things with people. That Jesus is about making disciples. He is about investing his life into other human beings so that they will grow into faithfulness and fruitfulness. Jesus is a disciple maker. And if you are a son or daughter of God, God has called you to be the same thing. He has called you to be a disciple maker, to be a person who is investing your life into other people. And when you think about the life of Jesus, this three-year ministry that he had, making disciples was a high priority of Jesus's. And he did everything he did with a group of people. In other words, disciple-making, you can't like mass-produce disciples. Disciple-making is time-intensive. It is time-intensive. It requires a huge amount of time to actually make disciples. I just want to encourage you in that. This is like the call of God on all of our life to make disciples, and that's going to be a time-intensive endeavor. And if you're a parent and you've got kids in the home, that's going to start inside of your home. If you're married, it's going to start within your marriage, and then it's going to trickle down into your kids, and then into your neighborhood, into your workplaces. But like, this is what God has called us to do, to like invest our life into other people, like we see Jesus doing here, so that they grow into faithfulness and fruitfulness. We are called to be disciple makers. I just want you to see there that that is a as-he's-going thing. This is like what Jesus, as Jesus is doing everything he's doing, he's doing that with people for the purpose of disciple making. So when Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and as he is spending time with the disciples, the conversation is going to get real serious real fast. Verse 27. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do, you, or who do the people say that I am? Now that's a huge question. Let's just reiterate that. No more important question than this question. Who, who do the people say that I am? And they told him, here's, here's the word on the street, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. Here's the first thing we learn about this question about the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? First thing we learn goes like this from verse 28. There are a lot of competing opinions about Jesus. There, there's a lot of competing opinions. So Jesus asks them, what's the word on the street? And here's their response. Some say um, John the Baptist. Like, John the Baptist had big crowds, you have big crowds. John the Baptist said hard things, you're saying hard things. So people kind of think that you might be John the Baptist come back to life. You, you look a lot like him, feel a lot like him to the crowd. Others say, no, no, you are Elijah. Like Elijah did a lot of miracles, you're doing a lot of miracles. So you kind of have an Elijah-like feel to them. And others, and this is kind of the junk drawer, kind of the catch-all, John the Baptist, Elijah, kind of the big kind of category here, is, is you're one of the prophets, like, like you're one of the, you're in that long line of incredibly gifted, you know, spiritually empowered men in the, in the history of Israel. You're another in the long list of those people. You are a great prophet. And so there's all these competing opinions. And, I, and here's the point I want you to see here, is that just like there were competing opinions 2,000 years ago, there are still competing opinions today, aren't there? I mean, there's a lot of opinions on who Jesus is. If you ask the, the roughly 1.5 Muslims in the world, they're going to say this. He is one in a long line of great prophets. He's a great guy. He's a good prophet. We're, we're like for Jesus in that respect. He's not God, but he's a great prophet. If you ask a Jehovah's Witness, they're going to say he's a great guy. He's just not God. 
See, there's a lot of competing opinions about who Jesus is. And, and if you want to kind of summarize the big picture view of the crowd, you might could like boil it down to this. Like, how did the crowd feel about Jesus? They felt like Jesus was a good man, a, even a great teacher, a powerful man sent from God doing supernatural things. When, when they put him in the line of one of the prophets, they are, they are like putting on him great honor. That is not like a belittling thing. That, that is taking the best people in the history of their people and saying he is like one of those people. Like they are saying a great thing about him, but here's the problem. And by the way, when they call Jesus a prophet, they're even saying a true thing about Jesus. But, but here's the problem. Even in them saying a true thing, they, they are not saying enough. And when we don't say enough, like in terms of like who Jesus is, when we don't say enough, even if what we're saying is true, that he's, he is a good prophet, when we don't say enough, what we're actually saying is still wrong. See, when we don't say enough, like when we're saying Jesus is a prophet, in other words, like a prophet is a person that points to the point. Like that they are pointing forward to, to one that will come to, to the point. And when we say Jesus is a pointer and not the point, it shows that really we have missed the point. Are we seeing that? It's showing that we don't understand yet. That even though we're saying something true, that we still have a lot of confusion, a, a lot of uh, weird opinions about who Jesus is. Like they're just not saying enough about him. Maybe, maybe you can think of it this way. It would be like someone asking you, you, who is Emmett Smith? And you saying something like this. Well, he's a guy that like, I think he carried a ball once. Well, I mean, that's true. He did carry a ball once, but it's not saying enough, right? Like it's not saying that, that he's arguably the most complete running back in NFL history, won three Super Bowls, is the NFL rushing leader with over 18,000 yards. It's not saying all of that. And by even saying something true, like he carried a ball once, and not saying enough, it's still wrong. It's not giving the complete picture. If someone were to ask you, who is Barack Obama, and you were to say, um, well, he's a guy that owns a house in Chicago. I mean, that's true, but because you're not saying enough, what you're saying is actually wrong, right? You see the, you see the point here, that the problem with the crowd is, like, what they were saying is true, but the problem is they weren't saying enough and it shows that they're still really confused about the identity of Jesus, who it is that he actually is. Now, this is where the Bible is going to help us here in, in Mark chapter 8. Because through all the, this confusion and through all these competing opinions, the Bible is going to cut right through it all and give us a comprehensive answer. The Bible is going to give us this comprehensive answer of who Jesus is. Now, just think about what's happened so far in the first eight chapters of Mark. Everything so far has been the lead up to this moment in verse 29. Everything so far, all the stuff that Jesus has been doing, he's been healing people, casting out demons, he's been calming storms, he's been doing all of these things, and everything he has been doing thus far has been the lead up to this. It has been in preparation for this. It has been to get your ears ready to hear what Jesus is about to ask and what Peter is about to respond to him. So, so here it is in verse 29. Through all the competing opinions, Jesus says this, and he asked them, his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now that phrase, you are the Christ, that phrase is pregnant with meaning. 
Like, if you want to take the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, here's one way you could think about Genesis to Revelation. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is summed up in those four words, looking at Jesus and saying, you are the Christ. Entire Bible summed up in those words. Like, in this moment, what Peter is saying, he is saying, you are the one we have been waiting for. You, you are the one that we have been anticipating and expecting. You are the one that was promised and predicted. You are the one that has come back to reverse the curse, to set everything back, to everything aright, to mend what was broken, to, to bring back together what has been torn apart. You are that one. You are the promised one, the Messiah, the Son of God. See, when it says the word Christ, that is not like Jesus' last name. But when it says Jesus Christ, Jesus is his name, Christ is his title. It's not his last name, it's a title for Jesus. And, and in the Greek, that, that word means anointed, it's translated anointed. And in the Hebrew, it's translated Messiah. And Peter's saying, that's what you are. You are the anointed Messiah. You are the one that everything in the history of the world has been leading toward. That's who you are. Like maybe you could think of it this way. If we just want to like drill into the content, and listen, we could like take that phrase and try to unpack the content of that and spend like multiple sermons on it. But if you just want like in a few phrases, some of what this statement, you are the Christ means, here's some of the content of that. It would be in that statement, Peter is saying, Jesus, you are fully God. You, you are God. You're not just, a, you know, in, in a long line of good prophets. You are the point of all the prophets. You are God in the flesh. And in that little statement, you're the Christ, Peter's also saying, and you are also fully man. You are fully God and you are fully man. You are God-man. This is who you are, Jesus. In saying that he is the Christ, it is saying, Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. Like, we have a problem with sin. Like, the problem is our sin has cut us off from God. It's separated us from God. Our rebellion has pushed us away from God. That is all of our problem. We are all living under the wrath of God apart from Jesus, apart from a Savior. We're all under the wrath and condemnation of God. We all have this sin problem. And, and in this statement, Peter is saying, but Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. He is the Savior. He lived a perfect life in place of your very imperfect life. He died on the cross for your sin, rose from the dead on the third day to deal with your sin so that you could be reconciled to God, brought back into relationship with God, so that we who were cut off and strangers to God could be brought into the family of God. He's a savior, Peter's saying. But not just savior. In this statement, Peter's also saying he, he's fully God, he's fully man, he's savior, but he's also Lord. He, he's also like king. He, he's also the one that we submit to and that we surrender to. It's, it's not like us coming to Jesus saying, now, okay, Jesus, I'm coming to you, but now you kind of get on board with me and you kind of get in line with me and you kind of make sure that I get to carry out my vision in life. That's not the deal. And saying that he is the Christ, he's saying that he's the Lord, that we come to Jesus and we lay all of our agendas on the table and we pick up Jesus' agenda, that we surrender it all, that we don't like keep Jesus at a safe distance over there or out there, but he like gets up close and personal, gets to affect everything about our life. See, this is what Peter is saying here. Maybe if you were to boil it down in just some simple statements, you could maybe think of it this way. Peter is looking at Jesus and saying, Jesus you are everything. That's what you are. You're everything. Like if, if, if we have nothing else but we have you, we've got it all. If we have everything else but we don't have you, we've got nothing. 
This is what Peter is saying. He's saying this is who you are foundational for our life. Literally, our life has been ripped to shreds and rebuilt on you. You are foundational. You're at the center. Jesus, you're everything. That's what you are. You are the Christ. See, this is, this is Peter's confession. This is who he's saying that Jesus is. For the first time in the history of humanity, a human being has looked at Jesus and actually got the answer right. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. Now, I want to take a little bit of a segue now. And I want to just compare and contrast for a moment the crowds and Peter and the disciples. I see the crowd over here, they are, they've got a lot of confusion about who Jesus is. That they feel like Jesus is a good man. He is a good prophet. He is a great teacher. But that is something much different than what Peter and the disciples are saying. Peter is saying, no, it's, it's a lot more than that. He is all of those things, but he is much more than those things. He is that, but he is fully God, but he is fully man, but he is Savior, but he is Lord, but he is everything. He is the Christ. He is that, but he's so much more than that. And I want to just ask this question. How in the world can Peter see that when the crowds can't? How in the world can this huge group of people who are looking at Jesus doing all of these things still just think, no, no, he's just a good man? While Peter and the disciples are saying, no, he is so much more than a good man. He is everything. How can they see like that? Answer. Seeing like that requires a miracle of God. Now, I just want to sit on this just for a second and to let you just sailor and think on this. That the difference in the crowd, he's just a good man. He's just kind of like an add-on to our life. Kind of like a hobby. We get to go and kind of cheer him on every now and then. But he's not like foundational. He's not like at the center of our life. He's not like everything. He's not like the Christ. He's not like Savior and Lord. He's just a good guy. The, the difference in that and the disciples is that God has come into these pe- in the disciples' heart and he has wiped away the fog and he is allowing them to see. See, when, when people deal with this passage, I think a lot of pastors love to get on like, what is the content of the, the confession that Peter makes? And I just want to spend a moment here thinking about what is the progression, what has happened in Peter's life to get him to a point where he can actually make the confession. That this is who Jesus is to me. What has happened in him? Now to see that, I need you to go back to verse 22. The story up above Peter's confession. You see it there in verse 22? It's this miracle of Jesus healing a blind man. And so here's how the story plays out in verse 22. Some friends um, bring this blind man to Jesus. I think there's a great word there about how evangelism happens. But these friends brought this blind man to Jesus and literally they begged Jesus to heal this man. And so um, Jesus takes him outside of kind of the city, this area, and he, t- and he takes him kind of over by himself and he spits on, does some weird things here, right? Spits on this guy's eyes. It's a little bit different. And then lays hands on this man. And then he asks him the question, do you see? And the guy said, I do see. I see people, but they look like trees. And and then Jesus um, lays hands on this man again. And then it says his sight is fully restored. Now, I want you to see what is happening in this miracle. This miracle is more than a miracle. It's both miracle plus metaphor. It's both of those two things. It's a miracle that is serving as a metaphor. Like the metaphor goes like this. We are all just like this this man, blind. Spiritually, we are blind. We are born spiritually blind with an inability to see who Jesus is clearly. 
This is what 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, that the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers. That when we are born, when we come out of the womb, we have an inability to see Jesus clearly. We are all born spiritually blind. And what is required for every one of us to get down to Peter's confession, what is required to, for every one of us is for God to come in and work a miracle in our life where he wipes the fog away from our eyes, clears the scales from our eyes so that now we can see. That is required for all of us. If you, I think about the, the relationship between these two stories. You get Peter's confession, 27 through 30. But right before that, preceding that, what comes right before that confession is this story, this metaphor of Jesus healing the blind man. Now, why is that? It's because they're connected. Like Jesus is showing us here that if we're ever going to make that confession that Peter makes in 27 through 30, it requires God to do something in us. It requires God to like wipe the fog away, to like bring, like, the, the theological term is illumination. For him to show us, for him to shine a light on something. And for the first time, we start to see clearly and compellingly, oh, that's who Jesus is. He's not just like a good man, but he is the Christ. Now, in Matthew's account of this same story, I'm going to flip over there real quick. It's going to be on the screen for you. This is Matthew 16. In Matthew's account, Matthew makes this really um, obvious. So so here's how it goes in Matthew's account. uh, Chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, or others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That's like joy and affection. Peter, I am so glad you are seeing this. And then look at what he goes on to say. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Are we seeing that? He's saying, listen, this is not a you thing. This is a God thing. God has come in and done something in you so you could see this, so you could see clearly. Maybe you could think of it this way. The crowds are looking at Jesus like many people today look at Jesus. They are looking at Jesus saying this. Man, he's a great guy. He's one of a long list of great prophets, great teachers, a great example. You should live more like Jesus. Just like the crowds, that they are saying, most of the people today, when they think about Jesus, say exactly the same thing as the crowd. Here's the point. What the crowds think about Jesus takes no divine help. It is perfectly natural. They're just seeing Jesus do some things, and that's what they think about him. But if we're going to see Jesus like the disciples, no, you're not just a good man, but you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Savior, Lord, King. That's who you are. If we're going to see Jesus like that, it takes divine help to get us there. It takes Jesus coming and literally wiping the fog from our eyes so that we can see that. Now, here is my hope for some of us in the room this morning, that for many of us in the room, that has never happened. When we think Jesus deep in our gut, he is just a good guy. He is not our savior. We're depending on our own good works to save us. When we think about how we're going to kind of do okay with God, it's we, we're going to live good enough and God's going to be okay with us. We've got our whole little system kind of worked out, but Jesus is not a savior to us. He's just a good guy, another in a long list of good prophets and good teachers that you could, should kind of be a little more like. And listen, my hope for you is that this morning, maybe, just maybe by the grace of God, he is going to come and wipe the fog from our eyes this morning so we can see clearly that he's so much more than that. 
that he is Christ, he is Savior, and that this morning you put your faith in him and he loves to save people just like you. Now, for others of us in the room, that, that you would say, no, I am a son or daughter of God. And God has come and wiped, at least once, wiped it clear. I, I would like for more of those things. I would like for God to give me more clarity, kind of like he did this guy in, in the miracle. But man, no, God has done that. I am a son or daughter of God. Can I tell you what it should produce in you to know that your salvation, you seeing Jesus clearly, you, you seeing Jesus clearly is all grace from God. Can I tell you what that should produce in you, knowing that the only difference between you and the crowd and their opinion of Jesus, the only difference between you and them, it's not your smarts. It's not that your heart was just a little more sensitive than the crowd. It is nothing but grace. Nothing but grace. That is the only thing that separates you from the crowd and how you see Jesus. And can I tell you what that should produce in us? Let me just give you three things real quickly. It should produce in us wonder and awe. When you think about the fact that you're saved, that you're in God's family, can I tell you what that should do to us? It should make us, like it should put a song in our heart and absolutely amaze us. I can just say, I can't believe that I'm a son of God. I cannot believe that I'm in the family of God. That is unbelievable to me. And it should, it should put awe and wonder in our heart. Second thing, it should produce humility in us. Like, if you're a Christian, it's not because you're cute. Are, are you, it's not, that's not the reason. It is because in, your, in the middle of your rebellion and wickedness, Romans 5 says, while you were still an enemy of God, but you weren't cute to God in that point. While you were an enemy of God, God came into you and did something for you. He pulled you out of the pit, out of the mess of your life, and saved you. I guess to produce humility in us, it should be an oxymoron that a Christian is prideful, knowing how it is that we're a Christian. It should produce humility in us. And lastly, knowing that we are saved by grace, it should produce in us a willingness to pray and proclaim Jesus in hopes that God's going to reveal himself to more people. It should produce in us just a prayerful and just a prayerful patience as we patiently proclaim Jesus to people. It should produce that in us. I think it's good just to remind all of us that when it comes to like how God works salvation, we saw these pictures up here in baptism. You have the person in the baptism that is getting, you know, that God has saved, but you have the person doing the baptizing as one of the influential people that God used in their life to actually save them. Like God worked through these people as a means of grace to save that person getting baptized. That's the picture you just saw this morning. But can I just tell you, it was not because of the awesomeness of any of the people baptizing. Are we, are we good on that? It was not because of how good any of the people baptizing were. It was not because of any of the people that were baptizing. Like, it wasn't because they had their little words in a row and, boy, they convinced them in them. It wasn't because of that. It was because God in his grace revealed himself to them, wiped the fog from their eyes. And we just need to be reminded of that. I think when it comes to, like, talking about Jesus to people, that the burden is not on us, it's on God. We just get to talk about Jesus, stumble around, do the best we can, and depend on God to do what only God does. And sometimes that's hard for me to believe. Like There are a lot of Sunday mornings where I preach, and here's how I kind of feel about a sermon. I kind of feel like it wasn't that great, and my preaching wasn't that great. Honestly, it was kind of lame, and some weeks it is kind of lame. And you know what God will like gently remind me of? You're not that great. 
and your sermon is kind of lame. But all you have to do is stand up and preach and do your best to show Jesus and trust me to reveal Jesus, right? And so can we just maybe like live under that this week as we get to talk about Jesus with like maybe just a renewed sense of freedom that it's not us trying to convince people to believe. It's us getting to talk about Jesus and allowing God to convince them, like to wipe away the fog from their eyes so that they see clearly. And number four, this question requires a personal response of faith. Requires a personal response of faith. I love how the progression of this passage happens. It starts and Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, who do the crowd say that I am? And they kind of give the opinion of the crowd. And then he looks at them and says, but, but who do you say that I am? And, and the way that the Greek is structured that sentence, the word you is put at the beginning of the sentence. And by adjusting the word order, you can emphasize things. So by putting you at the beginning of the sentence, it's a way of Jesus emphasizing, I'm not overly concerned about your opinion of the opinion of others. I'm, I'm actually more concerned with your opinion. Like, who is it that you say that I am? And maybe this should just be a moment of sobriety for all of us. That we're all going to stand before God someday, and you're not going to stand before God with your pastor. You're not going to stand before God with your home group leader, with your husband, with your spouse. You're not going to stand before God with someone else. You're going to stand before God all by your little lonesome. It's going to be me before God. It's going to be you before God. And can I just tell you, in that moment, the answer to this question determines everything. How you respond to this question in these moments determines everything. Eternal condemnation or eternal commendation from God and how you answer this. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ Savior, Lord, King, or is he just like another good person in a long line of good people? And when it comes to like that, that the response to this question, who is Jesus? I think it really falls into three categories. Three categories. The, the first one is reception. That's category one. That, that we're actually responding in faith to God. Like we repent of our sin in light of who Jesus is. We repent of our sin. We turn from our sin and we turn to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That that is reception. We know that we have a sin problem and we look to Jesus as the only solution to our sin problem. His perfect life, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We are banking on that. We are trusting in that. We are renouncing sin and relying on the person and work of Jesus for our salvation, for making us right with God, for bringing us into the family of God. We're depending on Jesus for all of that. That is reception. And, and let me just clarify the results of reception. When we do that, when we receive Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, here is what happens. In that moment, God saves us. He rescues us. He redeems us. He puts us into his family. He gives us his spirit. He commissions us as missionaries. This is what God does the moment we get saved. So, so one response is recep uh, reception. Another response is rejection. And, and this might be characterized by the religious leaders of the day. Like they hated Jesus. Like they, they were not like somewhere in the middle. Which, like they hated Jesus. They wanted Jesus like done and gone away with. In, in, in Mark chapter 3 verse 6, it says that after this little episode with Jesus in Mark 3, literally they began to plot his destruction and death. That's how bad they hated Jesus. And, and there's a lot of that today, isn't there? I mean, there's a lot that like, really just all honestly, Jesus is repulsive to them. 
They do not like talk about Jesus. Like you can talk about God all day long, but you narrow that talk about God down into Jesus and you just hit the beehive, right? Things start to go crazy right there. There's just a lot of people who don't want Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus. They don't want to talk about Jesus. They don't want to talk about surrender to Jesus. They don't want to talk about faith in Jesus. And listen, a lot of that is understandable. Jesus says offensive stuff, doesn't he? Like you are sin sick. Your sin has separated you from God. Your sin, if if nothing is done about it, is going to put you like on a collision course with an eternity away from God. Like those are all offensive things that you need to save, that the only way you're going to be saved is through Jesus. Those are all offensive, so it's understandable. But there's a lot of people who go the rejection route. Stiff arm Jesus, keep Jesus way out there. Don't like Jesus. And, And let's just be clear on what the results are of that. Option one, reception. Here's the result. Jesus invites us into the greatest rescue that we'll ever experience. That's option one, reception. But in rejection, we are walking head into our greatest ruin. See, when we stand before Jesus someday, for for all those who receive Jesus, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to be on center stage when we stand before Jesus. On center stage for all those who receive Jesus, put their faith in Jesus. What's going to be on center stage is God's great salvation. But for all those who reject Jesus, what's going to be on center stage is your great sin. But those are the only two options. God's great salvation on center stage or your great sin. And your response means all the difference in that. Reception or rejection. But, but there's this other category, this confusing third category, that, uh, that man, I just worry about so much with people in our specific culture, Bible Belt culture. And I'm just going to call this category misconception. Misconception. It's, it's people like much like the crowds who think who think they have received Jesus, but all the while they're really rejecting him. I mean, they, they think they've received him, but they really haven't. They, they think they have, ha, are living with God and on God's team, when, when all the while they aren't on God's team. And then what scares me so much about our cultures, I think our churches are full of these sorts, who, who believe they're on God's team when they're really not who believe they have received Jesus when they really have rejected Jesus. And, and let me just give you the, the brief play out and how this goes. For, for these people, the misconception crowd, they look at the people over here, crowd one that has received Jesus, and here's what it feels like when they think about this crowd. Like Jesus is actually affecting their life, affecting the way they live, affecting the way they think. Like Jesus is actually the center point of their life. He's actually the foundation of their life. Like when they think about Jesus, they think this, he is the Christ, Savior, Lord. He has everything. That's what these people think. And, and when the, the misconception people look at those people, category one, it kind of freaks them out a little bit. Like that, that seems a little too extreme. So, so they look at that crowd and then they look at the rejection people. And, and the people in the middle are like, well, I don't like hate Jesus. I mean, it's not that I have like a bone to pick against him. Like man, I, I pray before meals. I come to church, I do some good things. I even have a couple of Bibles around the house. Man, I want our kids to kind of know the Christian traditions. I'm in for all of that, but, 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 but I, like, I don't hate him. You know, like, I, I don't like him like that, but I don't hate him like that. And, and so what this crowd does is try to pull in, like both of these two crowds into the middle as if there is a middle ground. They try to pull both of these two crews in as if they, like you, you can be in kind of this murky middle and be okay. But, but can we just be clear this morning? Jesus leaves no middle ground. 
that at the end of the day, to stay in the middle is ultimately to reject Jesus? At the end of the day, to be neutral to Jesus is to reject Jesus? At the end of the day, to be slightly favorable to God, to Jesus, is to reject Jesus? At the end of the day, there is no middle ground. And what scares me so much for people in our culture is it is so normal for people to walk in and out of churches just like this, stake their claim in the middle ground as if they are okay with God right there. And can I just ring the bell this morning that there is no middle ground. To be slightly favorable to God is to be ultimately against God. It's to reject God. Like the middle ground, here's what they try to do. They try to do like all the Christian things. So they're in the circles. They come to the church service. They do all of these things. But at the end of the day, they're always stiff arming God. They're always keeping Jesus at a safe distance so that he doesn't interfere with their lives. So that he doesn't actually like cause them to like think differently and to like do their money differently and to do their family differently and to do their time differently. They, they always keep God at this sort of a safe distance. And God is saying, I don't operate at a safe distance. It's either you receive me or reject me, but the middle ground is not like safe territory. There is no middle ground. I love what Tim Keller says. He said it this way, either you'll have to kill him or crown him, but the only thing you can't do is say this, what an interesting guy. Man, I pray that for us, we'll crown him this morning. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.